Tonight we're beginning this series, Life in Babylon. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are living in a foreign land as an exile. Do you ever feel like a foreigner right here in your own home country? You see, we no longer live in a Christian nation. We no longer live in a nation that is rooted in biblical values, but rather we live in Babylon. And let me explain. See, in the Bible and in the world, Babylon was a real place. Babylon began in Genesis chapter 11 with the building of the Tower of Babel, which was an actual tower uh, that people built in order to take control from God. Babel was the place where people on purpose tried to replace God. And in the book of Revelation and, and throughout many of the prophetic books in the Old Testament, Old Testament, Babylon became a place where and a symbol of a society that marches to the beat of its own drum, that simply was marching away from God, marching in its own way of living. And so in this little brief four-week series, we're going to focus on how as believers... We have been forced to live in this Babylon, just like Daniel was forced to live in a Babylon. And we're going to draw some principles from Daniel's life. He lived in Babylon. We live in Babylon. He was pulled away from God. We are pulled away from God. And the truth is, our culture will influence you whether you want it to or not. It has a profound impact on us. And in this series, we are going to be counseled on how to live with character and with integrity in a hostile and contentious culture. We're going to see some guidance on how to live out and to stay true to our biblical beliefs in a society that may conflict with our faith in a society that only pulls us away from Christ. And so let me take a few minutes and bring you into the context of the book of Daniel, connecting the dots be, be, uh, between where we were in our series in Amos to where we are here in the book of Daniel. Well, after the reigns of, of King David and King, his son King Solomon, the southern uh, kingdom, the, the ten tribes, excuse me, the ten tribes to the north, the northern kingdom, uh, abandoned their faith. The the kingdom was divided after Solomon. Those northern tribes abandoned the faith. They started worshiping idols. And God wasn't pleased, obviously. And he sent warning after warning to them. Amos was one of those priests that, uh, prophets, excuse me, that went to the northern kingdom. And the northern kingdom, they just, they they heard the message, but they ignored. They, They refused to repent. And so finally, their disobedience left God no choice, and he allowed the Assyrians to conquer the ten tribes in the northern kingdom, and that happened in 722 B.C. You can see that on the timeline behind me. Well, despite what happened in the north to the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom of Judah, including the tribe of Benjamin, also drifted away from God. So what did God do? He issued warnings. He sent prophets to them as well. 
the prophet Jeremiah, the prophet Habakkuk, the prophet Zephaniah. They went and they preached and they proclaimed the message of the Lord. And again, the, the people of Israel, the people of Judah, they refused to hear the word of the Lord. They refused to repent. And so what did God do? He allowed them in the same way, the same thing that happened in the northern kingdom, he allowed the southern kingdom to be defeated as well. And so in, in 605, Nebuchadnezzar, of Babylon invaded Judah. He had already defeated Assyria, who had defeated the northern kingdom. And so now Babylon is the big player. They're the superpower. And in 605, Nebuchadnezzar invades Judah. You see, God would rather have his people living in shameful captivity in a pagan land than living like pagans in the holy land and disgracing his name. At first, Nebuchadnezzar forced Judah into submission and began exiling many of the finest and brightest young men from each of the cities of, of Judah. And after a few failed uh, revolts by Judah, Nebuchadnezzar finally laid waste to the city of Jerusalem in 586. And you can read about that in, Jeru in Jeremiah 39 and Jeremiah 52. Judah crumbled, the temple was looted, the people of Judah became prisoners of war, and in alien culture, they were exiled from their homeland to this foreign land of Babylon. Well, there are several deportations of Jews to Babylon, both before and after the fall of Jerusalem, and it appears that among the finest and brightest young men that were first taken off to Babylon in 605 B.C. were the young men that we just read about in our text. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Likely only about 15 or 16 years old. Now think about this. They have just been removed from their homes. They've been carried hundreds of miles away. They are now isolated from their family. They are isolated from their homeland, which means they are isolated in many ways from their faith, from, from the temple, from Jerusalem, from the center of their worship. And now they're living in this pagan, pagan land. I mean, you thought Israel and Judah had gone so far, and yes, there was idolatrous worship in Israel and Judah, but, but now they're living in a, in a completely sensual society, completely idolatrous society. Everything about the culture would come in conflict with a Jewish believer's convictions. Babylon was steeped in a culture that elevated all sorts of moral decadence so how would they respond how would they react will these young men succumb to the pressures of society and conform to the customs and beliefs of babylon can they keep their integrity can they preserve their character will they be able to stay faithful to the call that god has on their lives will they stay obedient to god would they still be able to use the gifts and abilities that god had given them in this unfamiliar and godless setting in a constructive kind of a way and here's tonight's big idea of the message it is simply this christians can bring glory to god in hostile territory yes we can bring glory to God 
even in a world that is hostile toward our faith. We're simply not to exist as exiles in a foreign land. God calls us to excel as exiles in this foreign land. So that's our message tonight. Excelling as exiles. And here's what we're going to see tonight. We're going to first talk about the godless, then we're going to talk about the godly, and then we're going to see God in all of that. So first of all, I want us to notice the indoctrination of the godless. The indoctrination of the godless. This is what we read. Is I, I wonder if you picked up on that as we read tonight's text in verses 1 through 7. Here's the truth that we're going to see here. It's there on the screen. The world will pressure you to conform. The world will pressure you to conform. So what happens? When Daniel and his friends arrive in Babylon, the king orders for the indoctrination process to begin. This was standard procedure. We read about that there if you look back at verses 3 through 5. This was standard practice. The king's policy was to train the, the best and the brightest young men from the culture, from that conquered nation to serve in his own government. And there are a couple of reasons for that. He could benefit from their knowledge of the people that he had conquered, right? By these young men, he could gain knowledge of the, the customs and the beliefs and the way of living and how things work back in Jerusalem and, and back in Israel, the way the Jews thought. And he could also use their skills to strengthen his own administration, right? So he brought them in, but, but in reality, the real purpose of this indoctrination process was to simply transform these Jews into Babylonians, right? So it wasn't just a new land that they were living in. There was a new language. There, was, there were new ideas. There were new customs. And they were given new names. And if we're going to excel as exiles in this land, we better be aware of our culture's indoctrination assimilation process because it is just as real in our world today there is an indoctrination that takes place every single day of our lives and I think that we can draw some parallels here to our own exile our own lives in Babylon so let me give you a couple thoughts here first of all what I want you to see is that the world will seek to subvert our thinking. The world works to sub... Uh, I guess I skipped it there. Go, yeah, go back to it there. The, the world strives to sub, subvert our thinking. It does, doesn't it? This is what's going on. I mean, Babylon was the learning center of the day. They had acquired this remarkable library from the Assyrians when they defeated the Assyrians. This is a three-year program, right? Uh, think of it like a, some type of higher education, you know? And so they were brought in, and they were, they were to obviously to learn the language so they could read and write the, the, the language of, of Babylon. There were other things that they would study, mythology, history, astronomy, mathematics, medicine, all of it 
coming from a Babylonian worldview. And along with this, the indoctrination of Babylonian culture and Babylonian religion, which included things like magic and sorcery and astrology. So all of this education that they were given was an indoctrinational program to subvert their thinking so that no longer they would think like Jews, but now they would think like Babylonians. Why? Because if they could conform or transform their thinking so that these young men would begin to think Babylonian, then they could succeed in conforming them to the Babylonian culture, right? Into the, the Babylonian lifestyle. Why? Why is this so necessary? Because the way you think determines the way you live. The way you think determines the way you live. You move in the direction of what you put into your mind and allow your mind to dwell on. You are what you think. So the process was to get them to think, not Jewish anymore, to get rid of all of their Jewish thinking and to now fill their minds with this Babylonian way of thinking. And the truth is, in our cultures, we live in our own Babylon today, there is a battle an ongoing battle for the hearts and minds of every person, especially the young people, right? Especially the, the, the kids in, in this age group, the, the 15 and 16-year-olds, and, and now it's much younger than that. But, but isn't there? I mean, in school, on TV, on TikTok, there is this concerted, intentional effort to shape the thinking of our children and the young people of our world to conform to the world, to conform to the, the thinking of, of the powers that be. Used to be more sub subtle, hasn't it? But wasn't it? But but now it's like outright lies that are that are being told. Well, Daniel and his friends, they didn't have any choice in the matter. They had no choice. Jerome, one of the early church fathers, claimed that Daniel and his friends studied Babylonian culture and religion, not that they might follow it themselves, but so that they might pass judgment on it and refute it. So there's really some practical relevance here. And what is that? It is helpful for us to become familiar with the cultural and intellectual attitudes of, of our world, isn't it? I believe that it, I believe that it is. I believe that it's, it's, it's necessary if we're going to be effective witnesses. We have to know how people think. We have to know what what, what, what is the, the structure upon which people are building their lives, the framework of their thinking and the framework of the culture. This is exactly what good missionaries do when they go to foreign lands. They move in and they begin to study the language and they begin to study the culture and they, they begin to try to understand the thinking of, of the people so that they can then contextualize the message of the gospel in that language, in a style and in a form that their audience can understand and comprehend and appreciate. So it's not all bad that they're studying this. The important thing is that we understand the goal, 
That we understand that there is a plan and a, an intention to, to subject, subvert our thinking to be like the world's thinking. We have to be aware then that this indoctrination goes on. You see, I think the important thing here is that while these Hebrew young men had been instructed, they were being instructed here in Babylon, they had been instructed at home by their parents, by their religious leaders back in Judah. You see, as we just studied through Amos, yes, men, the, the vast majority of people in Israel had walked away from the Lord. Uh, some of them were still worshiping God in a synchronistic kind of a way, worshiping idols and God at the same time. But there were still God-fearing people in Judah that were still worshiping God and were still teaching their children right. The truth is, parents, if we don't indoctrinate our kids and grandkids, somebody else will. Somebody else will. And it's most certainly not the people that we would want to indoctrinate our kids. I'm reminded of, of how Paul points out that Timothy was indoctrinated by his mother and grandmother, right? He says this, he writes, as for you, Timothy, continue in what you've learned. Where did he learn that? What he believed, where had he learned that? He said, you know you, how you were taught, how you know that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures and you are able to give which are able to give wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, that's what is right, for rebuking, that is what is not right, correcting how to get right, and for training in righteousness, which is how to stay right. What does all this mean? It means that, that, that Daniel and his friends, they had been taught God's ways. They had been taught God's word as young people, just as Timothy would later be taught God's ways and be taught the scripture. You see, God's word is the most effective antidote to all the worldly philosophies and all the lies that constantly bombard a Christian day after day. It is really important for us, church, to study the word of God. It is really important for us, church, to meditate on the Word of God every single day. Why? Because we are being bombarded with the philosophies and the lies of the world day after day. The Word of God is the antidote for that. The Word of God is the truth of God. And so a growing knowledge and understanding of God's Word is a must. Why? Because the world works to subvert our thinking. Secondly here, the world strives to stifle our convictions. Look at verse number five. It tells us there that, that the king assigns them these daily provisions from the royal food. So this is food that came directly from the king's table. It's the very food, it was the food that the, that the king was eating on his plate, quite literally, they had the chance to eat like kings. You say, what's the big deal? That sounds actually, that sounds pretty, sounds pretty nice. But again, there's a strategy in this. 
The strategy was to entice them into all the, the delicacies and privileges of their new life. Not only would they need to change their minds, but they needed to change their lifestyle. And that included eating and, and drinking like the Babylonians did. And the truth is, today, this seems like a mute, this would probably seem like a mute point to us, doesn't it? What's the big deal? But you know, it was a big deal. And for Daniel, it was a big deal because of this reason. It, it went against his convictions as a Jew who was still under the Mosaic dietary law. He was still under that. This was dishonoring to God. Uh, this food provided him. It didn't meet the requirements of the Mosaic law. It wasn't prepared in, in accordance with the regulations that, that were required by the Mosaic law. Oftentimes, it came from forbidden animals, unclean animals. They were not supposed to partake of. The drink as well as the meat Oftentimes, these things were dedicated to idols. So to partake of this, it, it also was a way of recognizing the idols as deities. So this was, this was something that went against Daniel's convictions. Now, you have to notice this. Daniel didn't take a stand on everything. They deported him to a foreign land. No resistance, right? We don't, we don't read anything about any resistance on Daniel's part. They changed his name, as we'll see here in a few minutes. Something, to a, something very offensive to him. No resistance. They made him attend school. No resistance. But when they offered him this food, he asked permission to not have to eat it. Daniel had a biblical reason not to participate, right? So what happened? Daniel took a stand when it was something that violated his Jewish convictions. Here's the point. The enemy wants us to give up our biblical convictions. He does. The world wants us to give up our convictions as Christians, right? Why does Satan, why does the enemy, the grand master of all, why does Satan want us so badly to, to give up our Christian convictions? Oftentimes, it's simply to derail our relationship with the Lord. It's to get us to focus on our sensual appetites rather than on the Lord, and it undermines our, our very purpose, given to us by, by God. Have you ever noticed how the world celebrates those who have rejected religious beliefs and convictions? Have you seen this? Right? Some celebrity or some singer, um, you know, Christian artist, no says they no longer believe, uh, you know, the traditional Christian faith, uh, you know, and, and they walk away from that. And the world celebrates, you know, oh, look at this guy. What a, what a real hero here. What a, what a real great guy. So, or, or, or a Christian leader, a, a pastor, some uh, well-known teacher who severs themselves from the church's historic teaching about sex and marriage, right? right? And, and the world celebrates that. But what the world celebrates, the church mourns. Uh, that's the way it ought to be. 
that, that what the culture celebrates, the church mourns. Why? Because the culture grinds against our values until either we crumble or our convictions crumble or we stand up and counter the cultural erosion. And so church, if we want to live godly in the middle of all this friction, we have to determine our core convictions according to the Bible and know how to live them out before we face the weight of social pressure upon us from the people around us. It's always easier to resist the winds of change if your roots run deep in God's truth, right? So the world is going to fight against this, wants to change our thinking, wants, to, wants us to get, a, get us to give up on our convictions. And number three, the world strains to shift our identity. We find this in verses six and seven. They change their, their names. We'll dig into this a little bit. This is what they did in those days. They, the, the victors would, would, would take the, the slaves, the enslaved captives, and they would uh, change their names as a sign of ownership. You belong to me now, right? And the idea was to change their identity from what their identity used to be to now this new identity that they wanted to shape them within. You remember that back in World War II when the Jews were rounded up and placed in ghettos and then in concentration camps, they were, their names were removed from them. What were they given? They were given numbers, right? Numbers instead of names. Well, Daniel and his friends were given these new names in order to confuse and alter their sense of being as well as to obliterate their identities. And, and I think by comparing the original, their original Hebrew names with the Babylonian names, we get a picture of our enemy's strategy. Same strategy that he uses today. So here's the, here's the names. If you look at your Bible there, look in verse 6 and 7, right? So you have Daniel. Daniel meant, means in Hebrew, God is my judge. And his name was changed to Belshazzar, which means Bel protects his life. And so it was a change from God, Yahweh, to now this idol, this false god of Baal. The shift is God is my judge to now it's some false god who protects his life. Hananiah's name, which meant uh, uh, Yahweh has been gracious, was changed to Shadrach, which means I'm fearful. I'm fearful of a god. And so again, here, there's a, the, the, the name, the meaning is inverted. Was a focus on who God is? God is gracious. God is kind. God is loving. All of that's implied in the name Hananiah. But now this name Shadrach echoed with this kind of fear that you might feel if you're standing before a tyrant. Right? Changing the, the entire understanding and character of who God is as if a God is a maniac, and a monster. Mishael's name, which meant in Hebrew, who is what God is. In other words, no one compares to God. His name was changed from Mishael to Meshach, which means I am despised, contemptible, and humiliated. Again, there's this subverted, it, it subverted the goodness of, of God in our relationship to him, and it shifted the focus from confidence in God to cowardice. 
okay? Uh, Azariah, the last, the last of the four here, his name in Hebrew meant Yahweh has helped. His name was changed to Abednego, which means the servant of Nebo, okay? Again, he went from being a son or an heir of Yahweh, a term of endearment for the living God, to being the slave of another man or a false god. So what's going on? In every case, the Hebrew captives' names were meant to obliterate the true nature of God and to reorientate their identities to become people who serve the Babylonians and the Babylonian gods. They wanted to encourage them to forget God and live in a way that was conformed to the ways of Babylon. And church, here's what happens. When the, cult, when the culture shifts, we better know what our identity is. When the world changes, when, when identity shifts, the, the culture shifts, and it, it's constant, man, it just seems like it is shifting like crazy, just at a rapid pace over the last even five years, hasn't it? I mean, the world's indoctrination today preaches that the human person can be reinvented and recreated in line with whatever identity a person chooses. People today have become adept to doing what is right in their own eyes, defining their identities according to their own constantly shifting ideas. From, from school-aged children who want to change their genders to couples of the same gender planning their weddings, it's increasingly acceptable to pursue what? What feels right. What feels right. Live your own truth is the, the bumper sticker mantra for today's generation. And it's conditioned people into this believing that we can reinvent ourselves and live any way that we choose. But what we as Christians need to understand is that our great enemy, Satan, has become adept in convincing us to accept false labels. We as Christians, he, he wants us to accept, maybe we're not going to accept a, a different gender, but, but do we mistakenly believe lies about who we are? I mean, the devil's constantly lying to us. He's constantly telling us, well, you're no good, and you're this, and you're that, and, and you're not much of a person. I mean, what, what, what are the lies that you hear the devil whispering in your ear about who you are? The truth is, we don't have the privilege of redefining ourselves or defining ourselves. Why? Because we've already been defined by God. We've already been defined by our Creator. God knows who He made us to be, right? Our identity is rooted in Jesus Christ. We are unique and beloved children of the Lord. And God has a unique purpose for our lives as his children. We're co-heirs with Jesus. We're adopted into the family of God. We're granted eternal life with him in heaven forever. This is our true identity. 
And no matter what the world preaches, no matter what the culture tells us and how the culture wants to shift our identity away from who we are in Christ, we must stand firm in our identity rooted in Jesus Christ. And so logically speaking, as you just stand back and you look at this indoctrination process that Daniel and his friends have been put into, logically speaking, life in Babylon seems kind of hopeless. Some would have given up on God, and perhaps there were some who were exiled into Babylon who just assimilated into the culture there. But Daniel and his friends, they didn't stop loving God because the situation they were in, they didn't waver in their faith. They determined to please the Lord regardless of their situation. And this brings us to number two. And that is the intention of the godly. The intention of the godly. Here is the truth. It's on the screen behind me. Pleasing God is right regardless of the, what the world thinks or does. Say that with me. Pleasing God is what? It's right regardless of what the world thinks or does. The world pressures us to conform. But will you allow yourself to be assimilated? Will you give up your God and embrace the gods of the world around you? Will you conform to the culture? Will you allow yourself to be seduced by the propaganda? Will, will you be indoctrinated by the world? Or will you remain faithful to the one true and living God? Not conforming won't happen on accident. It doesn't happen on accident. You're going to have to be intentional. So let's learn from Daniel's example. Look at verse number 8. Let's move quickly here. Daniel determined, what does it say in verse 8? Daniel determined that he would not defile himself. And so what I think here is we find some principles, some basic principles that can help us. This is not a blueprint with detailed instructions on how to act in every given situation. That's not what this is. But there are some basic principles here that can help us as we live as godly people in our Babylon today. Here, I'll give you three principles. Number one, determine not to defile yourself. Make up your mind to please God. Make up your mind to honor God. You have to make up your mind beforehand, church. You can't wait until the, the moment, you have to make up your mind beforehand. Daniel, had, Daniel was, was trained. He was taught as a child. There was, there, long before Daniel ended up in, in, in Babylon, I think that Daniel had a heart for God. And so when, all, when, when he found himself there in Babylon, he, he, had made up his, he was going to do what was right. He was going to honor the Lord. He was going to please God. Doing right isn't easy, but it's always the right thing to do. Amen? I think the key point here for all of us is that there is a point at which we must choose to go in the way of faithfulness to God or to compromise. We have a choice. Proverbs 1.10 gives us good instruction. My son, if sinners entice you, don't be persuaded. We've all been enticed at times to do wrong, haven't we? Remember, did you have, have you ever had a friend that, man, they just, they were really trying to get you to, 
to do, maybe, maybe you were that friend before you were saved. <laughs> trying to get your buddies to, to do something wrong. I love that instruction. My son, if sinners entice you, don't be persuaded. God calls us to live holy lives as exiles. This is 1 Peter. Peter wrote, but as the one who has called you is holy, so you also are to be holy in all your conduct. Conduct yourselves in reverence during your time as exiles. For you know what you, you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life. That's the way of the world. That's an empty way of life. We were redeemed from that. Not with perishable things, but with the precious blood of Christ. Church, would you determine not to defile yourself? Would you determine to do right, to honor the Lord, to please the Lord? Principle number two, do right the right way. Daniel went about doing the right thing the right way. So he doesn't cave in. He doesn't conform to the demands of Nebuchadnezzar and all the pagan customs of the Babylonians. But... He didn't expect the Babylonians to share his convictions. Nor did he act self-righteous about it. He didn't act judgmental about it. He, he, acts in a, uh, he doesn't act defensive. He, simply, he acts very amiable. He, he, he acts very respectful toward the eunuch. He goes to the, the person in authority and he explains the situation. You can see that in verse 8 all down to verse number 12. But he, he, he recognizes that his conviction put the eunuch in a bad situation. It, 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 made the, the, it put the, the, the eunuch at risk because if, if, if Daniel wouldn't eat the food from the king and if he started looking famished, that, that could be the end of the eunuch's life. So, so Daniel understood that, that he was, the conviction was his. And what he was asking of the eunuch put him at some risk. And so he simply asked, just please put us to the test. And if after 10 days this thing doesn't work out, then we'll eat your food. So he did right the right way. He doesn't threaten anybody. He doesn't stage a protest. There's no boycotting going on here, right? He doesn't try to burn a building down. <laughs> okay? He simply excels in his studies. He acts like a gentleman, and he asks to be tested for 10 days. He's gracious and pragmatic. And I think we can learn something from that, can't we? Because I, I think we can become kind of arrogant at times with our conviction. Well, bless God, this is my conviction, and you know we can start expecting everybody in the world around us to start living by our convictions. There is a right way to do right, which means there is a wrong way to do right. Sometimes we go about doing right, but the wrong way. I think we've been there, haven't we? 
We expect the world to conform to our convictions. How about loving and respecting people, even those who live contrary to our convictions? Because we're living in a Babylonian culture, if you will, it requires us to be wise in how we interact with the Babylonians. And I think Daniel's wise approach here is reminiscent of the following directive from Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3. He says this, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that is within you, yet do it with a gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, conscience so that you will not, so that when you are slandered, you, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Isn't that, doesn't that really fit what Daniel does here? We have to learn to choose our battles. Choose our battles. For example, if a Christian finds herself in a contentious and unjust work environment, she'll have to use godly wisdom to discern when to say something or not to. Right? When to turn the other cheek or when to stand up for herself. If she's constantly defiant, she may lose her standing in the company or even her job, but if she never speaks up for herself, then she may be allowing injustices to go unchecked. See, we need wisdom, and we need to be gracious, and we need to be respectful and loving. Daniel stood firm. He loved everyone around him just as Jesus did. That is what we are called to do when the culture shifts principle number three here is this we're to trust god to bless our efforts to obey him what does daniel do he brings this to the eunuch's attention he asks to be tested and the eunuch grants him that opportunity daniel goes through this 10-day process i believe he went into this situation Believing God, trusting in God. I'm, I'm not saying that Daniel knew that if he proposed this test that God would have to bless it. I'm not saying that he, that he believed that or he acted that way. I simply think that Daniel's faith was in the fact that if he obeyed the scriptures, God would take care of him somehow. He knew that the important thing for him was simply obey God, and then he trusted God to take care. How would God do that? He didn't know. When and where would God do that? He didn't know, but he left all of that to God. And isn't that what the scripture tells us to do? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean on him with all of who you are, right? All of your understanding and all your ways acknowledge him. And what does it say? He'll direct your path. Dave's paraphrase there. He'll, but he'll direct your path. He'll lead you. Trust him and allow him to bless your effort. He, he may not, it, it might not work out as you think it would, but trust what is, that, trust the heart of God. Do what's right and trust God to bless your efforts. One person put it this way, obey God and leave all the consequences to him. Well, they passed the test with flying colors. And this brings us to number three. Here's where we see God in all of this. The intervention of God. Here's the truth. God honors the faithfulness of his people. Daniel's in exile. 
He's been torn from his homeland. But God is with him. God hasn't abandoned him. Let me show you quickly God's intervention on Daniel's behalf. If you look in verse number one, we see that God saves. God saved Daniel, right? What, happened, what happens in verse one? Nebuchadnezzar lays siege to Jerusalem. He conquers the city. He conquers Judah. Daniel was saved from that. It's, it's almost like Noah. You picture Noah on the ark with his family, right? The judgment of God came upon the earth, and just as the judgment of, of God came through Nebuchadnezzar onto Judah, Daniel was saved through that judgment. Just as Noah was saved on the ark, but notice this, being saved didn't spare him from life in Babylon. <laughs> didn't spare him from suffering. It didn't spare him from, from dealing with what he would have to deal with as an exile. Didn't spare him from being ripped away from his family. Being saved from judgment doesn't spare us from this Babylon. We're here for a reason, and God had a reason for Daniel to be in Babylon, so God saves. We also see that God sends. It says in verse number two that the Lord handed Judah over to Nebuchadnezzar. Yes, this again was God's judgment on Israel, but God would make good come out of it. God sends Daniel. He sends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? He sends them to Babylon. Why? To accomplish his plan for his people. And church, we have a purpose. We have a purpose. We have a purpose. God has a purpose for us right here in our own Babylon. Let's not walk out of here tonight hating on our Babylon, hating on the culture, hating on, on their indoctrination and all of that. We, do, we need to understand it. We don't, we, don't want, we don't need to conform to it. But we need to not walk out of here hating all that. We need to walk out of here with the sense that God has a purpose for us. He wants us to shine for him, to be the salt and light for him in our culture. He calls us to excel as exile. So God saves, he sends, and finally he supports. You read all the way, read later on, read the end of chapter one, end of, read all of chapter two, and here's what you're gonna find out, that God honors Daniel's faithfulness. He gives him wisdom. He gives him understanding. He gives him favor with the eunuch. He gives him favor with the king. They, they pass the test, and the king honors them. He recognizes that they're the top of the class. God gives them blessing for their faithfulness to him. If you pay any price because of God, he will reward you. He will reward you. In response to Daniel's steadfast faith and commitment, God demonstrated his supernatural power and honored the one who honored him by blessing Daniel with the respect, and we'll, as we go through Daniel, we'll see, of the respect of four different emperors. The last of the four emperors that Daniel will serve, Cyrus, will be the one that will send Israel, Israelites back to Jerusalem. Daniel serves all four kings between exile to going back into the land. The story begins with the humiliation of Judah 
and its royal house, but it ends with some from that very house in a leadership role in Babylon. <laughs> this is the grace of God in the midst of the judgment. This wouldn't have happened. This didn't happen by force. This happened by the hand of the living God. In church, it, this is how it ought to be in our story. This is what God intends for us. We may be living in Babylon, but this is exactly where God has put us to live for such a time as this. We're living here and now. Let's not, let's not get angry at the world. Let's love our neighbors. Let's love our community. Let's preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to them. So God's will isn't for us to exit exile. God's will is for us to excel in exile. So remember this. The world will pressure you to conform. Pleasing God is right regardless of the world we live in, and God honors the faithfulness of his people. So here are your next steps, and we're done. Number one. Next step, number one. I will be alert to the world's pressures to shape my thinking, convictions, and identity while allowing God's word to shape who I am, how I think, and how I live as an exile on this earth. We need to be alert to it. We need to recognize it and allow the word of God to shape our thinking. Next step, number two. I will ask God to help me to do what is right in the right way, conforming to the will of God so that my life brings glory and honor to his name. 